Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, New York. I'm Dave Anderson, your host, while our regular host, Mike Nunez, is out on paternity. With me today, I have... William Jeffries. And we also have an esteemed guest with us today. Sumana Harihareshwara. How are you doing, Sumana? I am pretty well. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Uh, why don't you tell the nice people a little bit about yourself? I am a project manager, and I have my own tiny, tiny consultancy, Change Set Consulting, here in New York City. ChangeSet.nyc is the domain, as I'm sure will be in the show notes. <laughs> and I concentrate on short-term targeted project management for open source projects and organizations that depend on them. And for instance, last year, I was the project manager for the big revamp overhaul of PyPI, the Python package index. And I've also worked with Zulip, the open source Slack alternative, with the Electronic Frontier Foundation on their HTTPS Everywhere browser plugin and a bunch of other projects. I am also the co-founder and chair and co-organizer of an arts festival at this year's PyCon North America, The Art of Python. And I know a lot about open source maintainership, and I do some stand-up comedy, <laughs> and I uh, read science fiction, and I'm married, and <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Nice. I think that's a, that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you so much for helping out with PyPI. Like, that really is a life-changing tool for all Python developers. And yeah. that's really what we're here to talk about today. We're going to talk about sustainability in open source. Yeah, sustainability in open source is a huge, huge topic. Arguably, there are entire other podcasts about it. And <laughs> certainly, we owe a lot to Nadia Eggball, who had this foundational report, right, that she wrote, that she collated um, and, and researched and wrote. Roads I've not heard of her before. Roads and Bridges. Yeah, you should go ahead and take a look and at least skim this giant report that she wrote a few years ago. Nadia wrote, Eggball, okay. Nadia, yeah, Nadia Eggball. She, in Roads and Bridges, really got at the way that open source needs to be considered as infrastructure, not just as, you know, some hobby projects that some hippies are doing over there. No, 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 no. Approximately every organization in the world that uses software is in some way dependent on open source software somewhere so, in their dependency chains. So what you're talking, what I'm hearing is this should, we should consider this open source, like the MTA. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reasonable comparison isn't it i, I, mean, I think it is like there and uh, you know just looking around like at the start of the year i feel like especially in the start of the year people who are open source maintainers feel the pressure of it they start to like evaluate their their like uh you know yearly goals or whatever and they're like wow this is really hard like am i getting everything i need in order to perpetuate this project you know i would say that it, it feels to me like not only are open source maintainers hearing and seeing all of the results of underinvestment in infrastructure, in the infrastructure that they maintain, but everyone else is also hearing the creaks and seeing the delays. William, do you think, have you seen anything in open source projects that you depend on, for instance, being, oh, huh, they, they don't seem to be quite going at the the clip that I was expecting. Well, I mean, there are a lot of major security breaches like Heartbleed that tie directly into that. Open source packages are a really critical point of vulnerability for most companies. Yeah, I was really surprised to find that JS Lint, which is used by like every single dang 
JavaScript project that I've worked on recently is maintained by one guy, just, uh, you know, one, one person, uh, holding down the fort and you know, what a, what a hero. Like I didn't even know it's easy to like, just kind of take it for granted. I have this saying that I sometimes say, which is that hygiene is harder than heroics, which is to say Mm. that the everyday consistency and discipline of doing the annoying, difficult things in a really consistent way, that's actually harder for a lot of people and a lot of organizations than what we call heroism. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I totally, the, I totally agree. Like the just the yeah, the idea of like pushing it at the deadline and really punishing your body for like the victory that that is like celebrated in like sports and like you know firefighting and whatever else business. And if you are doing it in a sustainable way, no one will ever really uh, raise an eyebrow. So there's like, under celebration. Absolutely. But there's also just an entire mindset and uh, not only rhetorical, but emotional stance regarding tasks versus chores, right? Mm. If you think about something as a task, you feel happy when it's done. You've accomplished something. If you think of something as a chore, if your organization thinks of something as a chore, then it is something to be minimized and outsourced and uh, you know made, quote, efficient. And it's a boring thing that you attempt to do as little of as possible until it's done. Right. Especially as like a, a, a young organization, a startup, you know, you don't have that many resources. So it's like, OK, like let someone else worry about, you know, the world. That's not my problem. I am willing to believe that there are certain forces within startups that have that effect, but there's also absolutely forces like that within huge organizations as well, right? You know, you look at a Fortune 50 org, if something is a sort of commodity service, uh, you you know, are they going to actually have their own janitors in-house or are they going to try and do that through contractors and do it through the lowest bidder, right? And then similarly, anything that they consider to be a chore having to do with anything that's, quote, you know, not their main business or product line, the driver of value, right? Then, And I mean, this gets very abstract and philosophical, but when it comes down to, for instance, hmm, well, we have a product or service, and this goes for approximately every organization that has software that it runs, that, that, that users depend on in any way. You probably have a bunch of open source dependencies, and many of them, no one in your organization has ever audited them. Oh, yeah. No one's yeah. inventoried them. No one has done any code review, right, of the things that you depend on. We actually, as an industry, seem to think that that is above and beyond paranoia. It's, it's interesting that, like, you know, tools that we depend upon to install the dependencies have now taken it upon themselves to audit them sometimes. Like in N- some NPM, cases. NPM uh, does an audit of the packages and says, okay, like this version is flagged with a known vulnerability. You should upgrade this. And it will just hammer you with that until, uh, infinitely until you, <laughs> until you handle it. But like, you know, that's also a form of open source software that we're depending on to uh, nudge us and into so this is, doing that. Right, right, right. And then the question of, again, sustainability of like, well, is NPM as a venture backed thing, right? Uh, you get, you stay in this industry long enough and VC sounds like a dangerous term for anything you're actually going to depend on. Yeah. Like the idea of something like uh, PyPI going away 
like I don't I don't know what I would do. I would I would just have to find all of the binaries on a website and like host my own. So it's interesting. Um, so when I started looking at the situation of PyPI, it reminded me of back when I worked at the Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit behind Wikipedia and other free knowledge projects. Because in both of these cases, the site got popular before the code got good. Mm, interesting. January 2001, English Wikipedia starts. And it's just, the software is just some PHP scripts that some people threw together. They didn't even have a name. It was just called The Scripts. <laughs> and then dot zip and, and then it sort of cohered there's a software engineer uh, who worked on MediaWiki for a while who said that it's wiki text parsing grew organically like mold on a shower curtain <laughs> <laughs> and so eventually right this sort of cohered into a PHP web application called MediaWiki and then there were traffic spikes and then it was just a race, a treadmill to keep this site up and keep it going and add caching and get backups for goodness sakes, all this incredibly immediate technical work that needed to happen before there was a chance for any real re-architecture of MediaWiki on somewhat better grounds. And so similarly, Python package index started as a big list of pointers practically, right? Just hyperlinks to other people's websites where you could download binaries. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. By the way, I'm uh, summarizing here some history that I wrote up in a piece for LWN last year uh, to tell people about the history of PyPI and also Dustin Ingram and Ernest W. Durbin III, who were both the developers who work on Warehouse and the software behind PyPI, have given talks at regional Python conferences and at PyCon North America that go into all this history in a lot more detail. And those videos are all up and available on PyVideo. But anyway, so this software underneath PyPI, right, it had to then adapt to, well, maybe we should actually host those binaries ourselves. Okay. Which is called, uh, it's called Warehouse? Like the, the if, current if, software is yeah. called Warehouse because for a decade plus, right? It was uh, kind of the equivalent of like the scripts, right? It was a really difficult to use, difficult to develop on pre-World of Web Frameworks Mm -hmm. web app, right? And that was written in older Python and so on and so on. Right. Legacy Python, as we call it today. Right, right. And, (laughs) um, And that's what PyPI ran on, but... Various people, especially Donald Stuffed, created a new thing, Warehouse, which is built on Pyramid, which is a Python web framework, and which had tests and, you know, continuous integration and proper separation of presentation and logic, et cetera. So, you know, <laughs> the, the, these, what a dream. <laughs> I know, right? These, like, lovely icing. And so that was the future of PyPI, and volunteers worked on it, and Donald Stuffed got some free days from his employer on a regular basis to work on it. And it really needed to become the main thing instead of this sort of side beta thing that was in beta. And so the Python Software Foundation applied for funding from Mozilla, which provided some money via the Mozilla Open Source Support Program mm-hmm. to uh, to PSF. PSF dispersed that money to me and several other contractors, and we basically got Warehouse over the edge into uh, so we could flip the switch and have the real canonical PyPI be running on Warehouse instead of the old 
legacy software. That's awesome. And so we got we got that finished uh, April of last year, I think it was, and or early May, and uh, in time for celebrating at PyCon North America. <laughs> and so the sustainability side here, right, is organizations which depend on Python really ought to be considering donating some chunk of their proceeds to the Python Software Foundation and being sponsors of the PSF because the PSF can then fund the continued maintenance, security updates, and development of PyPI and other packaging utilities and things like that. Now, am I interested here? Yes, absolutely. Change Set Consulting has a contract with the PSF, right, to do some work on PyPI. But even if I didn't, I would still think this was a really good idea. And yeah, having, especially like since you were saying it before, it's like it's infrastructure. It's it's the, uh, the bridge. It's the tunnel that we uh, yeah. take so into uh, Python it, land. Tell me about what strides financial contributions are. What taxes does it pay right to the open source community for the infrastructure that you depend on? I'm not aware of that, but uh, Stride does allow a budget for us to contribute back to open source software ourselves. Like cash? Yeah, like we'll we'll get we'll. Yeah, can, so like Stride bill, billable hours. Stride pays so not, not Stride cash. employees time. Time, to yes. okay. do open source software All full right. time. So there's a piece of open source software that Stride maintains called Remote Retro, which is a, to help teams conduct retros. And Stride pays the primary maintainer and other maintainers on that code base to do that work. And it's open on open. It's on, up on GitHub, and you can fork it if you want. Mm-hmm. Right. But for instance, what language is that written in? Elixir and, and React. React. Yeah. Okay. So the people who actually maintain Elixir and React aren't getting any money from Stride, right? Well, I mean, there's like an endless list of dependencies and trying to track all those people down and making sure that they get like a, like whatever. Well, that's where Tidelift comes in, isn't it? So I do a tiny bit of consulting for Tidelift. So I am interested. I'm not absolutely objective there, but... Tidelift's model is one of the ways that open source sustainability could possibly work in this freaking industry, right? Libraries.io is the open source software that they use to kind of scan like a tricorder the dependencies in your world, right? Through your package manifests, uh, Chef, Puppet, whatever. And then that tracks across a bunch of different package managers, language, and frameworks. Oh, this cpan module depends on this ruby thing depends on this maven thing whatever and then you find out what you actually depend on you can pay some subscription money to tidelift and then they you know take care of the hard bit as it were which is actually paying those maintainers getting those maintainers paid so that they can spend their time actually releasing new versions and fixing bugs and keeping up with security and licensing. So how do you make sure that the money is going to the pieces of infrastructure that are most critical to you? Like it might be that this particular project that we're mm -hmm. working on, that the contributions are going toward relies really heavily on graphene and that's super important, but that's just one package. And is it there also a reason has graphene like comes to mind? While <laughs> <you're in? laughs> graphene yeah. is one that I think could maybe use some love. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I, I spent the past year working with graphene and I'm, I'm actually giving a tutorial talk on graphene at PyCon this year and I'm very excited about it, but also, you know, there, there's some challenges like the, the core maintainer for many years has kind of like a, other interests and wants to move on to other things. And so now we're trying to Is there a bus factor a issue? Community. Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so who's the lieutenant? 
Right, who's second in command of graphene? And has that person shown any interest in being funded to work more on it, et cetera? Uh, I think the first in command is Cyrus Subarski, and the second in command is probably also Cyrus Subarski. <laughs> We're going to have a conversation in a couple of days. Maybe with, the uh, second with a group in command could be Dave people. Anderson. <laughs> I don't think so. But they're, they're, they're going to have a community discussion about like what kind of model might uh, the future look like for sustainability and I, i'm definitely looking forward to like having that conversation with people at pycon as well like mm-hmm. you know getting some enthusiasm about uh you know graphql and python and organizing something sustainable i will say i have never personally gone through the tide lift sales process right in the sense of trying to pay money to tide lift so that they can pay money to maintainers. So I don't know as much about what you can fiddle with of I want a subscription for this versus not that. But my understanding is it's not all or nothing. It's okay, you're paying a subscription to these projects because these are key to you and you want the maintainer agreements. You want secure dependability and sustainability on those projects. That's my understanding. But I'm sure that you could probably get one of the title of folks on this podcast to talk more about it. I often don't say the marketing approved things. About title, like I've had them give me the presentation, and nowhere in that presentation does it say any kind of tagline that goes like "making open source sustainable." No, really, this time, which is one of the things that I often say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) many have tried. I will say that no matter whether or not you're thinking about going with Tidelift, it's worth checking out libraries.io. Just as a user of open source for a few reasons. One is that you can use libraries.io, the website, to subscribe to email notifications for new releases of any of the packages in like 30 different package managers. And some of those package managing websites, some of those package managers don't have email notifications, RSS, anything like that. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. That's always a challenge. Like, it, it's nice. Like, we we talked about npm. Like, how it recently started having like, you know, integrations to tell you when you should upgrade your packages. But it's it's something that's easy to forget about. Like, once you you have the functionality, it's doing the job for you. You can kind of forget about your uh, you know left pad library or whatever. It's funny how we have left pad and Heartbleed. And some of these other sort of poster children now <laughs> for the problem, but not nearly enough people know about some of the solutions and some of the attempts at thinking about the, if I may, theoretical frameworks that such solutions would have to uh, address, So, like the Roads and Bridges report and Tidelift, right? So I'm, right. I'm doing my tiny bit yeah, to tell people about that that's, stuff. That's true, yeah. And it, those things... It says something about the media today where like, you know, the the train wreck is the most attractive thing to like look at, to gawk at a little bit. You (laughs) say media today. I mean, I'm just imagining that whoever was going around retelling the Homer's Odyssey (laughs) had the same problem. People wanted to hear more about some bits than others. Yeah, please let me know how badly that that experience the Lotus Eaters went. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the the sweet bit at the end where Penelope is like, oh, could you move the bed? And he's like, how could I move the bed when it's literally built into the ground because I carved it out of a tree? She's like, aha, that's how I know it's you. Like, <laughs> not nearly enough people. Uh, no, I don't, I don't remember that part, no. Yeah. But there, there's... Well, the bard who came to your town was like bowing to popular demand and talking about Scylla and Charybdis, So, <laughs> Yeah, let's hear that one again. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, like that's a great point. Like, the sustainable models like when when they're working like because people aren't thinking about it like 
they they don't notice it because it's it's the chore. Infrastructure, uh, the the idea that infrastructure is not is whatever is not seen is also part of the division between what kinds of work we consider masculine versus feminine. Mm. Right? Like the moment something seems boring the moment something seems like a chore that will need to be done over and over again that is not very celebrated you know the industry feminizes it right so and and considers it to be women's work so Mm, computers i mean the 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 original computers the (laughs) computer right the computer boys take over that book uh i think it's mit press you know all that all that kind of stuff programmed inequality there's now so many other authors and speakers who write about this stuff that I don't even need, I can do my job instead of like ranting about this all the time, which is nice. (laughs) You just point at things. I can just point at things, but it's part of, part of the problem of maintainership, part of the problem of how we consider open source maintainership to be or not be a role is it's different from lead dev, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just, the person who has the most skill at understanding the existing code base, reviewing and making additions to it, and architecting you know, the next generation, which is all extremely important to do, right? Any code base of any size that's going to be a going concern is going to need that set of skills. But mm-hmm. also, if you want to be a leader, if you, whether it's inside a company or inside a consortium, or inside a government institution or a nonprofit or an academic institution or in an open source community, if you are the leader or the coordinator of other people's efforts, there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen, like actually sharing your roadmap instead of having it live in your head, giving people reviews on their code that allow them not just to improve that bit of code, but to understand better the context that they're operating in so that someday the broader direction that you're headed so that someday they will be able to review other people's code. Mm -hmm. And of course, and and community buy-in and all that. Manage your upstream, manage your downstream, uh, figure out budget, figure out, yes, marketing is actually a thing because you wouldn't want for instance, some other project that is worse than yours to get more users. Just because it has like better, shinier gifts on its website or, or, or do- docs are a form of marketing too, I think. Absolutely, they're a form of marketing in a certain way. And I mean, to me, when I think of marketing, there's awful marketing where you try and lie and manipulate and stuff like that and substitute sensation for usefulness. And then there's the kind of marketing that is like, Making sure your neighbor knows about a thing that would make their life easier, right? And in general, earnestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm. I've been accused of being very earnest by many people. <laughs> so yeah. And so I, I've done a little bit of open source marketing. A lot of times, that's what it is. It's a PSA, right? It's a public service announcement. Yeah, yeah. There's something about like just getting excited about something because it, it is. Very useful and, and wanting to get back to that. And so a lot of the things that a maintainer needs to do in order to help nurture an open source project, make sure it doesn't freaking die on the vine, is stuff that the tech industry as a culture, at least the programming side of the tech industry, right, often mm-hmm. calls management. And it's like it's a dirty word. <laughs> You just want to, well, in the the projects that are more 
challenge to have maybe people who are like, you know, the sole hero or survivor. Well, I'd actually like to know the both of you, right? Is your sort of microcosms, right? Both of you work in the tech industry. Both of you probably came into it assuming that you would be programmers, right? I started out as a support, support guy, a person. What do you mean by support? Technical support. So I don't know. I came from a non-traditional background. I think uh, at a time when less people were doing that. So I had a mechanical engineering background and I make it out of a lateral transition. It's funny to say non-traditional, isn't it? Because like how old are these traditions exactly? <laughs> it's kind of like the collectible Franklin Mint thing. Like who's, you know, it's the like traditions putting, of the 90s. Yeah. Know? Yeah. When you thought, okay, I'm going into programming. What was your view of what programmers did versus what managers did? I think I thought of the programmers as the one writing the code and the managers as doing something less interesting. Spreadsheets. No, seriously. What did you think managers did? I think I thought of managers as coordinators primarily. Everybody needs a manager. You need somebody who is going to be an advocate for you for the rest of the organization. Who's Internal facing the person, your primary point of contact that you go to with questions about compensation or opportunities. More like mechanical internal things. And what did you think? Uh, yeah, I think something along that. I think we've, we've, we've had some good discussions about like managers in uh, technology. Let me check my tattoos. Uh, yeah, so in episode 69, that was a great one. We talked with Kyle Rush about becoming a manager, like what that, that means and uh, yeah, we've had a couple of good discussions about that and how like, you know, it, it it means like kind of growing, growing the team and being responsible for like, you know, kind of making a garden versus uh, other command and control kind of perspectives. So do you think that are there any good uh, resources for people who want to get involved or like kind of try to level up in these areas to become a better open source maintainer or who want to even just grow into that at all or consider that? My feelings on that are that there are a lot of individual pieces of advice that are helpful in different contexts. Having a community of practice is incredibly important when you want to grow in any skill right? Whether that skill is baking or bird watching or using React or being a better maintainer. So finding the other maintainers in your language or framework community and talking to them is going to be very helpful. There mm. are some general open source maintainer conferences and online communities so, for instance, if your community participates in Google Summer of Code, there is a yearly mentor summit that is a really excellent conference that uh, Google will pay for two people from your organization to come to. That is one of the reasons to participate in GSOC is so that your org can send some people to that mentor summit because it's a community of open source maintainers who all want to help get more contributors in there. Yeah, I really like that idea about like really driving it towards community maintainer like, like finding finding uh even if you're alone in in that task of like maintaining it or being like the leader there like there are other leaders out there that there you can, are and there are other maintainer related conferences there's maintainer there's sustain oss there are some online communities that github 
itself is is working with. And I think becoming a tide lift lifter is also going to hook you into a particular community. But also some of these skills are management skills, right? Mm -hmm. You have the skill of managing things in general. You have the skill of managing software projects and you have the skill of managing open source projects. And there are, I've actually got a blog post that we can link to in the show notes that is basically here are a bunch of resources at each of these levels. If you've never run anything before, then you're also going to need stuff at that first level. If you have run things like, let's say, an arts festival, but you've never run a software project before, you're also going to need stuff at that second level. And if you've run software projects in the enterprise on a proprietary project, but never open source, you're going to need stuff at that third level. That third level, the Bible there is Carl Fogel's book, Producing Open Source Software. But I have... Uh, several blog posts that seem to want to become a book <laughs> about being a maintainer, not just in greenfield, but in brownfield, right? Not just starting sure. an open source project and setting it up well, but coming into an existing one, maybe when you've never run things before. Yeah. Maybe we can uh, put some links to those in the show notes. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. The, I, I definitely feel like I fall into that third category where I might I might check out that book or those blog posts myself. You mean the book that I, doesn't exist yet that I need to write? Oh, <laughs> well, one day, but building open source software book. Carl Fogel's yeah, book I mean, is absolutely a tremendous resource and not nearly enough people know about it. Yeah, I've never heard it before. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard cats, but not distributed cats before. So Wait, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, distributed network of global cats that are everywhere helping you build software. Open source cats. I'm sorry, I still don't understand. <laughs> it's a bad metaphor. Okay. Yeah. It was wonderful chatting with you about maintainability and open source, Sumina. Uh, is there any way that people can uh, reach out to you? Absolutely. I have a website. If you search for my name, S-U-M-A-N-A, you will get there. I've been blogging for nearly 20 years. So there's that. But also, I am on mastodon.social as at brainwane that's b-r-a-i-n-w-a-n-e or if you prefer proprietary social networks i am on twitter as brainwane i think i've seen you around there well we'll have to have you back sometime i would love to chat with you some more especially about an arts festival that i'm about to run at PyCon north america called the art of python that sounds great a little bit of we'll foreshadowing there. <laughs> <laughs> foreshadowing that sounds like an art term william <laughs> Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and our amazing host, Michael Nunez, who's out being a dad, and me, your host, Dave Anderson, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole.